Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the continuation and the conclusion of the Tears podcast that I did with Adi Joseph. We did record it in two parts. I released the Western Conference one, I think it was on Sunday, and we hadn't recorded the Eastern part, but we did that a little earlier in the week. And really the only thing that changed between when we recorded and now on the Eastern Conference was the Alan Crabb trade. So Alan Crabb going from Portland to Brooklyn in exchange for Andrew Nicholson's dead salary, which has already been waived using the stretch provision. So you can listen to that part without that context. But I think as I was editing it, I thought it was actually interesting with where we talked about them and their strengths and weaknesses for Brooklyn. And yet again, we go top to bottom. So we start at the top and kind of how that works out and then work our way down. And at the end, we talk about some of what we're looking forward to this season and just kind of what's still left to come. And this episode is brought to you by Movement Watches. Movement Watches, they're beautiful timepieces. I have one of my own in the 40 series that I absolutely love. You can go to mvmtwatches.com slash realgm and you get 15% off your order plus free returns plus free shipping. So you can definitely check it out there. Conversation with Adi Joseph of For the Win runs, I think it's about an hour 25. A uh, good conversation going a lot of different directions and hope you enjoy it. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me again. Twice in a week. Twice in a week. I mean, well, I'm thinking of it as one segmented part of a week, but we talked before we started recording about whether we wanted to go top to bottom or bottom to top, because may, arguably, unlike in the West, in the East, it's act, both elements of that, the top and the bottom, are actually pretty interesting. Yeah, the East is a, a bizarre, bizarre conference right now. A wasteland, if you will. It's, but it's just. <laughs> but so so like, and we've we've talked to for those who haven't listened to it, we talked in the Western Conference about how for both of us this is a regular season exercise for right now, and I think that's important to note at the very beginning of this because my tier one is the Celtics and the Cavs, and the reason for that is the Cavs I see as a better team, even with Gordon Hayward, I see the Cavs as a, as a better team, but I don't think they care about the regular season because they have no reason to care about the regular season. Yeah, I'm actually even less optimistic about the Cavs. Not only with this whole Kyrie Irving trade drama, um, and maybe they, they'll make a move that um, kind of alleviates any concerns, and maybe you know if they get the right package for Kyrie, if they do trade him, they end up a better team. But um, 
I, I like the Celtics roster more right now. Um, the Cavs did not do anything really to get better this offseason. Jeff Green does not count. The big thing is, I think the Celtics are growing into themselves, figuring out their identity. Brad Stevens is learning how to be an NBA coach. And they have a whole lot more to their roster, a whole lot more elements, a whole lot of guys who can, they can, at least for parts of games, throw at LeBron. Um, you know, Gordon Hayward's one of those guys. Marcus Morris is one of those guys. Certainly Jay Crowder will take the main role, but Jalen Brown being a year older, suddenly they've got a stable of guys who they can throw at LeBron for five to ten minutes every game that they need to. And uh, I I really do. I think the Celtics are a better team than the Cavs today. As of July 24th, 2017, I do believe that the Boston Celtics are a better team. I think they're a better regular season team because they have – well, their depth is weird, but they have a lot of depth – and they have motivation to kind of push for it home court, even though it didn't win them the Eastern Conference. It still certainly helped throughout that process. They were able to get through. They were able to weather Isaiah Thomas's personal troubles, which, you know, was was a huge deal. I mean, I don't want to, to discount, you know, his sister tragically dying right before the playoffs. And they, you know, they scuttled a little bit early against the Bulls. But if they had been facing a better opponent, that might not have happened. And or they might not have been able to come back. They still might have gone down 2-0, but they wouldn't have been able to come back. And the other massive part of this, I mean, so Zach Lowe, we're recording this a little bit after his piece came out, and there are a couple others in this line that basically made it seem like the Cavs are running on the assumption that Kyrie Irving is going to be gone. And my biggest criticism of what Boston did this summer was that I thought they got better at defending LeBron James and worse at defending elite point guards. And that looked to be catastrophic against Cleveland, but there's a very real chance that we see a significantly different Cleveland team than we all expected. Yeah, that, that's part of what I'm, I'm thinking is that if, there, if there's even a 50% chance, and I'm not sure there is, that Kyrie's gone by the, by the trade deadline, by the finals, then I think that the Cavs have a little less, uh, the Celtics have a little less to worry about. I really do believe, though, that Marcus Smart's a better point guard defender than than uh, Avery Bradley. I I think Marcus Smart's an amazing defender. He's so strong, he pushes players off. And Bradley's actually given up some size to Kyrie. Uh, and Bradley, I know that his his on off numbers are horribly horribly skewed because he's constantly defensively on the court with Isaiah Thomas. So he doesn't end up looking like as good a defender as he is. But, um, you know, I, I really do believe that they they made some moves to get be better on defense and uh, across the board. And I think that they also really helped themselves with handling Tristan Thompson, whether it's I don't I don't know if Antes is just going to give them anything um, right away. But I do know that Aaron Baines is extremely strong and tough. And now they've added they're an enormous roster now across the board, every position except center, kind of. They have so much size, especially with Smart at the point, that they're going to be a great rebounding team at every position. That's going to help them to avoid having Tristan Thompson running around at Al Horford, as sometimes has happened over the last few years. The Marcus Smart part of it, I think you're right defensively. I mean, I think Avery Bradley is a better man-to-man defender, but I think that Smart is more versatile, which is important because depending on how they're going to structure this defense, Smart can be put into more situations on large guys. And and also as a help defender, I think he's a little bit more active because Avery's so locked in that it can actually be a detriment in that way. He's gotten better as a defensive rebounder, which is great. But as a help defender, that's not really his job, but he's not great at doing that stuff. However, the big challenge with Marcus Smart is offensively. 
that Avery is, even though he may have wanted a larger role than this, he's so good as a lower option because he can he's capable of filling the role and the other team has to defend him. With Marcus Smart, when he's running the offense, he has the ball in his hands, you can make that work. But when he's off ball, which he would be with Isaiah a large portion of the time, you just don't have to cover him as closely, and so that gums up the works to a degree. And so I think that they'll have to figure it out, and there are some challenges there. But then the other element that we have to talk about with Boston, and I think this is even more true if Cleveland trades Kyrie, is that if they decide to cash in some of their chips, they could get somebody amazing to fill that spot. Yeah. I mean, they they could do so many different things. And um, I think you and I are of the same mindset that they've kind of made their bed with, in terms of Isaiah Thomas being their star point guard score scoring player um it's a tough situation because it's one where he's a flawed player no doubt and they have the ability to go out there and make a trade and get someone who's a little less flawed but he's a core part of everything they do as a team he's super talented on offense um i I saw nba math released uh stats of who was adding the most value at every different in, in in as a scoring threat and uh isaiah was the the player adding the most offensive value to his team last year he's insanely good on offense and if you could somehow just have him play that side you know you'd have a a super duper star not just an all-star but what he is also is he's a key leader he is a guy who understands he's a guy who you know for a guy who averages 30 points a game or close to it not many of those guys really understand why they're being taken off court sometimes and isaiah does in a way that most other guys who score as much as he do, he does, don't seem to understand, okay, these are my limitations. And Isaiah, thankfully, kind of does understand his limitations. He has been willing to play within them. And, and I think that's one reason that I think it's okay to accept that Isaiah Thomas is a key member of the Boston Celtics now and moving forward. The one part of it that I wonder about, I think Isaiah is actually underrated off ball. Just he's gotten so much better as a cutter and coming off screens is how that's going to work with Hayward because the idea is that Isaiah they had built a team that made a lot of sense around him when he was basically the straw that stirred the drink all the time I mean Isaiah can do that he can be off ball but so now that they have Gordon Hayward they need a little bit less from their point guard that's part of the reason why the George Hill Hayward dynamic worked so well last year and even though Hayward has taken on a larger role partially because George Hill could never stay healthy he can do that and so you can resolve that by staggering those guys a little bit more, especially if they want to kind of use Marcus Smart more with Isaiah than when you have Isaiah off the floor, then you can use Terry Rozier, presumably, and Hayward together. They'll have to figure all that kind of stuff out. But what Hayward opens the door for is a little bit of a lower usage point guard if they wanted to. The problem is those guys are incredibly hard to find that fit in with exactly what the Celtics want. There are a lot of, you know, talented point guards at various levels in their career, but they want somebody who's good now, who's going to be good for a long time, and ideally somebody who has team control. I think that's part of the downside for them of Kyrie Irving, unless, like, they could trade for Kyrie, theoretically, if they wanted to, but they would have to get some sort of understanding that he was going to commit long-term because they don't need a guy for two years. They need somebody who's good now and is going to be good for five or six. Yeah, but we know, Danny. Come on, we already established they didn't draft Markel Fultz. And I think you and I are on the same page there, and that's kind of what I was referencing is, like, Fultz would have been an easy path to one day just either next offseason letting Isaiah Thomas walk or trading Isaiah Thomas. They don't have Markel Fultz. They're sticking with Isaiah, and Isaiah is really good. Isaiah is one of the few point guards who 
is exceptional in isolation, exceptional on pick and roll, and exceptional off ball. Not many players can do all three of those. And uh, that's what makes him a good fit for them offensively and makes their offense a lot better when he's on the court. But um, he's a flawed player. He's probably the reason that a lot of people doubt that they can get past him. But I really think Marcus Smart can fill in gaps. Marcus Smart and Isaiah can play together a lot. I think we'll see a, be- a better Marcus Smart. And on top of that, you know, we always talk with Boston about, with uh, Golden State about how if Draymond and Iguodala just hit enough threes that you have to guard them, they don't have to be good three-point shooters. They just have to make you honest. Marcus Smart isn't that far removed. He's already taking four threes a game. If he can up his percentage to 33% instead of 28, we've suddenly got a guy who you can't leave open constantly. And that's basically the leap that they need from Marcus Smart as a off-ball player. And then on-ball, I think he's already really talented. And I really, his instincts are extremely good on both ends. And he's he's so strong, he gives you a unique presence. So he's a big part of why, and his evolution and his growth and Jalen Brown's growth are a big part of why I really do believe this, the Celtics are equipped right now to beat this version of the Cavs. Obviously. And then the Cavs, oh, and then the Cavs will just add Dwayne Wade in February, and you know there goes that. <laughs> they probably will, uh, and and that'll that'll help them a lot. I mean, Cleveland at this point they look like a very intriguing destination for those kind of guys, especially somebody like Wade who has such a connection with LeBron and doesn't have that like with the Warriors or anybody else. And I don't think he would go to Boston. I think those would kind of be if he gets bought out, those would be the two most likely outcomes unless and and unless a West team really looks like they're standing out and I don't really know who that would be. San Antonio doesn't make a ton of sense and then Houston, I just don't know where he'd play. It'd be, it'd be yeah. fun, but I don't know where he'd play. I mean, they uh, have so many guards. Maybe if they traded Eric Gordon or something, but I don't think they should do that. So, yeah. I think right now we can't talk too much about the Cavs, but we can talk a little bit about like that well, possibility of when, like what would they look like with a Dwayne Wade and what they'd look like if this they took this roster with a Dwayne Wade is yeah. Um, one more thing before you would you would though. you wouldn't be able to stop them. Like they would, <laughs> you would not be able to stop their offense at least. Uh, you know, it would just be a question of can they defend anyone, but on offense, they'd be insane. If you let them run a Dwayne Wade out there in a small ball lineup with JR at the three or Dwayne at the three, however you want to call it, you'd have, they'd be able to pick apart any weakness in your team. I think they would have success against almost everybody. The Warriors might be a challenge just because the Warriors can switch on a lot of those guys. And Wade is somebody who can you take advantage of the space that is given to him. But I think if you're going to allow him to shoot 17 footers, he's not going to yeah. kill you anymore. And so, yep. but, but against other teams. Oh yeah, absolutely. One thing how I does Isaiah ask you, Thomas play if Kyrie and, and Wade are the backcourt for the Cavs? How do you even play Isaiah? You can't put him on one of those guys. You just have to be ready to sacrifice a bunch of points. Like you just have to you go in that route of like hoping you outscore, and then that gets into a challenge of Marcus Smart because if you if yep. you're going to play in a shootout, then Marcus Smart has less value because he can't really do that. Something I wanted to ask you before we move on, and we could talk more about the Cavs, but uh, there are obviously going to be context dependent parts of this. But knowing what we know right now, what would be your preferred closing five for the Celtics? That's a, a good question. I think you, you it, it depends on if you're trying to come back or if you're trying to hold the lead to some degree. But I'd want both point guards. I'd want Isaiah and Marcus out there. Definitely Hayward, definitely Horford. And then I think you go with Crowder just because he's so versatile. But you, on some days, you can go with Jalen Brown. On some days, you might go with Jason Tatum. 
And on some days, you might only go with one of the two point guards, especially if you're trying to hold the lead. You don't go with Isaiah, you go with Marcus, especially if you're trying for a big comeback late in the game, like in the last two minutes and you're down 10, but you need to win this game. Then you probably want Isaiah out there and you just hope he doesn't give it back on defense. But he's such a good offensive player that you kind of need him out there. Um, so it's, uh, it's a tough situation when you have that many options. And that's what Brad Stevens is going to have to figure out is how to manage these options. I think he has two players who he knows are going to be out there. That's it. Hayward and Horford. Those are the only two guys that he knows will consistently be out there at the end of games. I think that Isaiah will be out there a lot, but you're right that it might not be all the time. And then also the idea, part of why Boston can work, is they can go small, they can go big. They can play Hayward at the two if they want and basically just switch everything. They could even, they have enough wings. They're one of the only teams in the entire NBA that can do this. They could functionally, if they wanted to, play five guys who are between like 6'6 six, six and 6'9 six, and just go with that route because they'd have shot creation from Gordon Hayward and Horford to a degree and Jalen if he's out there and they'd have enough defense with everything else I mean you wouldn't want to do that against every team especially the ones that have point guards that can attack size but it could work and Stevens has a real challenge in front of him but I think that's why the Celtics are going to be a worthwhile league pass team the whole way is just to watch the exploration and the experimentation that they do. Whereas with Cleveland, you know, other than if they get Wade or another buyout guy, we pretty much know what this team is for right now. Of course, trading Kyrie would throw that all up in the air. Yeah, yeah. That's why, I, to me, like the Cavs are one of the, are in this wild East where everything's kind of falling apart. They're one of the least interesting teams, and I don't even want to spend that much time on them, really. So then the, the next group... Would you agree that there's a pretty clear separation between the Celtics and Cavs and everyone else? Yeah, that's a clear Tier 1 versus these next teams as Tier 2. So Tier 2, I don't draw the tiers in terms of categories necessarily, but I did have a name for this group, and for me it's very likely playoff teams. And so you know, it's not even more likely than not. It's just I would expect them to be in unless something crazy happens. And for me, that group is the Wizards and the Raptors. Yeah, actually, I, maybe I'm being more generous. Um, I'm calling this like the Steel and Eastern Conference Finals bid slot, and I'm actually adding the Bucks. Oh. So so I'm saying the Wizards, Raptors, and Bucks, and I think there's a chance that Giannis has an MVP caliber year. I really do. I'm very high on him. Always, you know, I think I think you've also always kind of been on his his bandwagon, if I'm not mistaken. But that is correct. You look at what he did last year. He put up numbers that are completely historic, top 20 in ever in all five fantasy categories, you know, 521 field goal percentage, youngest player ever to average 22, 8, and 5. <sighs> this guy's got some crazy skills. And then you add in the factor that Chris Middleton missed 29 games. It missed only played 29 games last year, and they were really, really good when Chris Middleton was in the lineup. And he didn't even overlap with Jabari Parker except for one game. So I know there are some problems with the fit with Parker. I think Parker made big strides, um, shot the ball pretty well, even from three. I think he's he's going to be a good player to have next to Chris Middleton because Middleton will help him on defense, and Giannis will help him on defense. But Giannis and, and Middleton and Parker have really never gotten a chance to do it together. This is their chance, hopefully. Um, they're, they're still crazy young, but they're so good that they should be really good next year, and I, I'm excited to see it. 
considering Jabari's still making his way back from injuries, and I'm betting they're going to be extremely cautious with him, that looks to me more like a a playoff dynamic or even post, let's say, post-deadline type of deal. But I haven't heard a definitive timeline on Jabari yet, so I can't I can't speak to that with any authority. But you're right that we're going to see uh, hopefully a, a more realized version of the Bucks even without Jabari during the regular season because they you know they had they had Tony Snell for a year they know what to do with him and then Middleton makes so much sense with this team and so while Giannis kind of can bounce between the two positions their starting five with him at power forward especially if they're going to start Thon at center makes so much sense because they have more spacing it allows Giannis to get into a defensive role that he's actually better at he's better as a help defender in the four spot than he is as a real man-to-man lockdown guy like some people think because of his physical tools that he should be and Milton is actually more that kind of guy to me and so that can work out well and then Tony Snell does Tony Snell things so that starting five makes sense and then why the Bucks? I have them lower but why they're the top of my next tier is because they're deeper in a way that I think is really useful. So they have a ton of different guys at center. They're not all great. You know, Thon, Greg Monroe, John Henson, Spencer Hawes for now. And that'll be good. Point guard, they have Delhi as well. And then they have just a kind of a, a collection of other guys. Toledovich is one where they should be able to make this work. And so I think they're the best to handle the rigors of regular season of any of these other teams, even though they are very honest dependent. Yeah, I just think that the Chris Middleton's been on my like most underrated list for a while. There's a lot of similarities. He's, he's been on that list Jim. for you since he was on the Pistons, right? I think yeah. I remember you. The, I think I remember one of that list when I was when he was on the when, when he was on Texas A and M. He was on that list for me. That's so um, there's a lot of similarities between Chris Middleton and Jimmy Butler. There are. Um, and I think we actually saw them when they went head to head in that playoff series where Chris was the only good player on the Bucks for an entire playoff series. If you remember, that was uh, 2015. Giannis was awful that series. And I think he wasn't healthy if I remember. I don't remember the exact circumstance, but Middleton was crazy good in that series. He's always had it. He's a he's a three and D guy, except that he can also run your offense. Um, and so he and Giannis together is just an awesome combination. They always play well together. Um, and then when Jabari, like you said, when he does come back, I'm hoping that we finally get to see a real important run where they have the three of them. And I know it's not going to be all season. I didn't realize it was, uh, to be honest, I didn't realize that the outlook was February for him. I thought it was more January, December type thing. I was, uh, I had heard last thing I heard was a calendar year. Yeah. So if that's the case and that hurts my argument a little bit, but I still think in fact, in the regular season, they might even be better off with, you know, the, the Snell, Giannis, Middleton trio starting because Tony Snell does nothing except hit his open shots and, and pass the ball when he's not open. And then Malcolm Brogdon's kind of the same way. And you're talking about the second most dynamic player in the Eastern Conference playing in a starting lineup with three 40% three-point shooters. That's, that, that's pretty, pretty good. Those three guys will all happily just take open shots and, and hit them. And then Middleton can create on his own. And like you said, it'll be very interesting to see what the center position leads. But the, the, the honest truth is, Jason Kidd may not even want to admit this, but Greg Monroe, they're always best with Greg Monroe on the court. They are consistently best with Greg Monroe on the court. So I don't mind the traditional plotting, you know, low post stylings because he, it works. He, they play really well with him. So the Bucks are a team I like. And then you know, to shift to the other two teams that I think are definitely in this tier, less arguably, the Wizards and Raptors, they kind of just are staying, staying, the, staying their path. 
Yeah, been, I mean, I think uh, you, ta- you talked about how the Cavs are one of the least interesting teams to you in the East. To me, other than the fact that I enjoy watching John Wall so much, I think the Wizards are that team for me. They're just going to be what they were last year as long as they're healthy. The only things that I'm really going to watch is who takes another step. Like, can Bradley Beal have more depth to his game? Otto Porter, same thing. And then the other one is I really like Jan Mahimi and his signing has been roundly criticized for for a series of reasons, many of which make sense, especially the injury concerns. But a big part of why they got him was that he was insurance in case Marcin Gortat falls off. And that very well could happen. It hasn't yet, but it very well Never will. And so (laughs) if Mahimi can, first of all, he's uh, so much better as a defender than the other guys that they tried out in that spot. You know, Jason Smith was far better than I thought he was going to be. But Mahimi's a better player than him by a meaningful margin. And so can they work that kind of stuff out? But that's more of a reason to to keep an eye when they play a good team on League Pass than to watch them game in, game out. Yeah, the, the guy who I'm most excited for, who became, I think, everyone's folk hero in the playoffs, was is uh, Kelly Oubre, <laughs> who I think is probably, with you know, with Bogdanovich gone, probably becomes their most reliable replacement for Beal or Porter um, off the bench, unless I'm forgetting that they added someone. But, you know, I think he's a he's an important part if this team wants to get better. The Wizards have basically taken get the luck of getting a number one pick and two number three picks and built around those three guys that they drafted with those slots in the most, like, fundamentally sound but boring way, I would say, and, and just kind of left it up to their three max contract young players who they drafted, John Wall, Bradley Beal, and and Otto Porter, to take the team as far as those three can take it. And, uh, you know, the Markeith Morris trade was probably the best move Grunfeld's made other than those simple draft picks. And uh, that's where this team is. And and I think that goes to what the Rockets, what what the Raptors are too is they they acquire the right players and now they've just been trying to move around move pieces around them and you know obviously Kyle Lowry um to switch topics to the Raptors obviously like Kyle Lowry is gonna hit a wall at some point right I mean he hasn't hit it yet but the guy is getting older he's a small point guard he's had a lot of mileage on his on his uh legs even though he wasn't a star until pretty recently it'll be interesting to see if and when he hits that wall and and what that does for the Raptors and their whole future that's a good way of putting it and part of the reason these two teams are frustrating interesting whatever word you want to use is that they have a very unusual ceiling to be at and that they're at it right now you know both of them winning a playoff series or two you know that's pretty much what they are and the expectation is even if you know the two teams that are above them that sort of thing can change but it feels like there's always going to be someone above them so that could be milwaukee rises past them or the sixers or you know whoever else gets a star player like if miami had gotten hayward or blake griffin like that's just that's kind of their destiny their destiny is to to make it a few rounds to have if that makes their fans happy great i mean i'm not that that's a, a great place to be compared to where almost every other team we're going to talk about is but for people who do what we do it's not that compelling why i'm intrigued by the raptors is 
they actually have a collection of young guys that I don't think have super high ceilings, but that I just want to see work out. You know, they're probably going to start CJ Miles, and that's fine. That was a reasonable transaction. But Norman Powell is going to get some meaningful time. I like Norman Powell. Jakob Pertl is probably going to play more at center. They moved Corey Joseph, so they're going to be trying these young guards, Van Vliet and DeLon Wright. So to really see how those guys fit in, I don't think they're going to really change what the Raptors are, but that's their best chance of doing so. It scares me a little bit, and yet also excites me a lot bit, that Norman Powell is now like a clear-cut member of their closing unit. I know he kind of got in there sometimes in the past, but they usually like to have uh, Lowry and Corey Joseph running dual point. Now they don't have that option to then slide Duros down to the down to the three and, and probably have Patrick Patterson or P.J. Tucker. Now they don't have Tucker, Carroll, or Patterson. So suddenly they have no small ball options at the four, unless C.J. Miles, obviously, and Norman Powell can team up and be the smallest 3-4 combination in anyone's closing unit um, in terms of height. But that means that like Norman Powell is going to be the guy who's guarding LeBron. He's going to be the guy who's guarding Giannis. He's going to, and he's 6-4. And I know you're a UCLA guy, and I'm sure you love Norman Powell in college, but um, this is going to be a really interesting test for a, a second rounder who, yes, he's certainly outplayed those expectations, but I mean, it's, it's a big challenge to ask a 6'4 guy to be the guy who guards LeBron because you definitely shouldn't ask CJ Miles to be that guy. Masai Ujiri made an unusual and in many ways kind of fascinating decision to decide that Damari Carroll isn't the guy. I mean, some of that was probably also determined by money, you know, that they wanted to get below the tax and all that. But Which make, is crazy in Toronto, a, a market that, from what I've heard, just rakes in money. But Well, and that has wonderful yeah. fan interest. I mean, that's something yeah. that I remember back from my early days at Real GM was that Raptor stuff often does well. And, you know, the, there are a series of other kind of data points on that. Making that understanding is fine. But then doing that, looking at the Eastern Conference with not only LeBron, but Gordon Hayward just added came to the Eastern Conference. He's playing on a team that the Raptors will presumably be facing in the playoffs or could face in the playoffs for years to come. And then saying... And Giannis, like I said. And Giannis, that's a great point. And just going, yeah, we'll figure it out. I, it, it was. It's not what you'd expect. It makes sense because of the guys that they already had on roster and because finding a defender, unless they were just going to keep P.J. Tucker, which they could have done, unless yep. they were going to do that. But it seems like that's another way that they lowered their ceiling is yeah, that they, was, they don't have a way of solving that problem. I think it was a mistake to let all of them go. And maybe OG Ananobi turns out to be good sooner than I expect. Well, he, and he's hurt know, right now. So that's that, you know, he's got, take yeah, some time. He's, he's got insane potential to be the exact type of player that they're now missing. <laughs> but um, And he could be the perfect player for what they're now missing. But this is a team that's still like I mean when you're when you're talking about Abaka and, and Lowry and and uh, even to some degree DeRozan although he's a little younger than those two, you're talking about a team that's still playing for right now. They're not playing for the long long ahead, far away future uh, for the most part. And they're going into this year. CJ Miles is six six, but really like for most of his career he was a shooting guard and he's a competent player who is who does everything his coaches and teammates ask of him. But is he the guy you want to guard in LeBron? No, but I think Norman Powell has the strength to do it, but he's 6'4". Is he the guy you want guarding Giannis? Who's guarding Giannis? You know, like, who's guarding when the, when the Celtics come in and they run those big lineups where they've got Marcus Smart at point guard and then a bunch of 6'6 six, six to 6'8 six, to 6'7, you know, and then Al Horford, it's like, 
how do you match up with that size with this roster? And it, they're in a weird spot where, in my opinion, it was a mistake letting all three of those guys, letting letting go of Carroll, Tucker, and Patterson really limited your options. And uh, that's something that they addressed with the C.J. Miles trade and with drafting OG. But like you said, OG's probably not going to contribute in year one. C.J.'s just not the lockdown defender that, say, P.J. Tucker is, even though he's a better player. Patterson also took so much less than I expected. You know, I wasn't a surprise that he left Toronto, but leaving Toronto to go to the for the mid-level exception to a team that will be competitive this year, of course, but who knows beyond that, is not what I not what I expected. And then the other frustration with them is that if they made the determination that they needed to save money, and it might have just been a timing thing or a supply-demand issue, but the more ambitious choice would have been to move Valanchunas. Because once you've committed to Lowry and DeRozan, Valanchunas provides a lot less value because you can't feed him the ball when you have those two guys on the floor. He's not a great defender. He's all right. So what they could have done is kind of leaned into what they're going to be a little bit more and traded Valanchunas if they could have. You know, I mean, maybe you're not going to clear as much space with him, just but if he's younger. I mean, I think there's probably less dead money on his salary than Demar- than Damari Carroll, or at least the way they treat it, because they also included picks with Damari. And then you from there, Jakob Pertl probably is, he isn't perfect. We know that. But if all you're asking from that guy in the playoffs is 20 minutes a game, and then Ibaka is going to play some center, and then you probably have a third guy, whether that's Bebe Noguera or somebody you sign off the scrap heap, whatever you're going to do, the margin between Valanchunas and P- and Pirtle for those 20 minutes is a lot smaller than the margin between Damari Carroll and nothing. Yeah. I just don't know who wants him. I, I just don't I don't think that Valanchunas would have much trade value at all or any trade value. And I think you'd probably have to give up an asset to get someone to take him because as you've written extensively about, teams don't want centers and they specifically don't want centers like Jonas Valanchunas. And um, you know, his contract being so long, I, I think that they it's crazy to say this because he's a very talented big man and he's twenty five and yet this twenty five year old talented big man who just averaged you know, 12 and 9.5 a game in 25 minutes last year. I don't think teams really want him. And I think he's a good regular season player for them to have. He definitely adds something in the regular season. But then you get to the ends of the ends of playoff games and he's borderline unplayable. And that's that's becomes kind of the issue. They also ran into an issue because some of the teams where you could go, oh, you know, maybe if they if they care more about winning in the regular season than I would, like Sacramento, like Sacramento threw a lot of resources into being better than I th- I thought was a better idea. They could have gotten Valanchunas instead of Zach Randolph, like that. Yeah, that's... but they have seventy five centers. They do have seventy five <laughs> centers, but how many of those centers can actually play? And Zebo is pretty much a center at this point too. Oh, so you better not talk any smack about Scal. Oh, I love Scal. Scal's my guy. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think Scal. I think Scal long term is he's a center. He's a like he's not you know he's not a perfect center for the the kind of the Valanciunas type vibes. But I think those guys are becoming not extinct but marginalized in the league. And yeah. so I think I think the league is eventually going to the place where Scal can be a five. And I'm I'm here for it. I've been there for it. And at the same time, that's not the way Jaeger is going to play. And so, like, yeah, but there are other teams like, I mean, because Valanchunas is, he's not the best young center in the league, but he is one of the best of those type of guys that could be moved. Like, he's so much better than 
Al Jefferson or to Ennis me Cantor. or Ennis Canner or to me to to Nick Vucevic like those type of guys so if if you were to look at anybody in that range he would be the one but as you said you know there still has to be one even if he's the one you still need somebody to actually want that and so not only do you have more of these young talented guys like Miles Turner and Joel Embiid around the league but you also have more capable guards and I think this is a part of this as well that we're not talking about is the exact same problem that that Toronto has Valanciunas gets less valuable the more capable scores you have and they're, uh, to me, partially because of aging and partially just because there are more good guys coming into the league, there are more of those players, so then that decreases the marginal value of Valanchunas. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of teams built around centers, I think uh, that's probably a good transition into Tier 3. Yes. Okay. So I'll let you. I'll let you do your rationale and any stuff for Tier Three first because I've led the last couple. My Tier Three is small. It's two teams: just the Heat and the Hornets. And those are the other two teams to me. That's the Heat Six, the Hornets Seven. Those are the other two teams that I think should expect to make the playoffs. They have every reason to come into this season thinking, if we're not in the playoffs, something went wrong. And um, beyond that, I think. Those are two teams that largely kept their cores together, but sort of brushed up around the edges a little bit. Um, I really like what the Hornets did in buying low on a couple guys uh, on, a, on a few guys who I don't like. Uh, I, I, they put me in a position where I have to compliment them for getting Dwight Howard, Michael Carter Williams, and and Malik Monk because they got them all at really good values, and um, those are our guys who could help you on, on your bench if they let them. So it'll be very interesting to see the way Steve Clifford, a noted Dwight Howard fan, a longtime person who praises Dwight Howard, uh, deals with the fact that Cody Zeller was great for him last year. And if Cody had stayed healthy, they would have made the playoffs pretty easily. And now he's got Dwight. Does he start Dwight? Does he give Dwight too many minutes? It'll, it'll be interesting to see how he balances that early on. The Hornets are in a great spot because they know how to... Basically, they have done something that a few other teams have, like the Spurs, I think, are, deserve a lot of credit for this, of taking a player that has become undervalued, a player type that has become undervalued around the league and actually knowing how to use it properly. And that's what Dwight Howard is. You know, these guys that are more limited defense they're straight straight fives offensively and defensively and can defend can rebound but just just do that you know just just let them go and they have been marginalized around the league that we just talked about Valanciunas and those type of guys I think they're going to use Dwight really well and giving a few giving a lower workload to Cody Zeller is fine and then some might be concerned about the idea that they're going to play Dwight and Zeller together, and they might a little bit, but they have enough wings and forwards and guards that I don't think they have to. They're overstuffed there. Those guys might want to play a little bit more just because they'll be cranky, but they won't need to do it because they can throw beyond their starting lineup. I mean, they're, they're probably going to start Batum, MCW, not MCW, M- MKG. Oh, that's going to be hard. And... <laughs> Marvin Williams together, but then when you're kind of putting in guys around them, whether it's Malik Monk, if he steps up, Frank Kaminsky, you know, numerous other directions, they don't need to get some minutes, extra minutes for Zeller and Howard together. Do not be surprised if Frank Kaminsky replaces Marvin Williams in the starting lineup. And Frank actually, uh, he had a, a pretty solid second half of the season in some ways. You know, he's, he's really improved his three-point shooting, shot 36% from three in the second half. He's not a perfect player or anything even close to a perfect player by any means, but 
Um, I think they would like to limit Marvin's minutes a little more. Uh, 30 minutes a game for a player with his injury history and his experience in the league is, is a lot. And start, starting Frank, to give Frank a bit of a confidence boost, might be a good move there. Um, so the Hornets are an interesting team. And then, then, then we get to the Heat, the other team that I know we both agree is, are, is on tier, tier three. And then I know your tier three is a bit bigger than mine. But um, the Heat are a fascinating team because it really, really, really feels to me like Pat Riley is unwilling in his 70s to deal with a rebuild. And as a result, he's just bought in full scale on we're going to make the playoffs every year. This is a roster that I believe can do that. But it's a weird roster. I mean, they're, they gave a lot of money to Deion Waiters, Kelly Olenek, and Josh, I mean, James Johnson. And that's a, those are three guys who, I mean, James Johnson has been up and down his whole career. Deion Waiters is Deion Waiters. They've given a ton of money to Tyler Johnson, a guy who I think everybody loves but hasn't fully proven anything yet. Um, it's a very interesting, it's just a fascinating roster and a fascinating future situation with their cap. Yeah, they're cap long term. I mean, basically they've committed to this group unless something big changes. And because this is a, a I, this is Orlando and Phoenix both have this problem where they have a lot of guys that have middle range salaries, you know, between 10 and 18 million. That means that if they ever wanted to clear space, it would be incredibly hard because yeah. you have to move multiple guys. The values of those players are there. But so with, with the Heat, the one peril that I've seen around the conversations with Miami a little bit and why I have them as a reasonable playoff team, but not a definite or like an overwhelmingly likely one is last year. Famously, they finished the year 30 and 11 after starting the year 11 and 30. And there's kind of been this assumption or belief that the 30 and 11 is more reflective of their talent level, plus Spolster's coaching and everything like that. I agree that it's closer to that, but it's not there. Like, this is not a 60-win team. This is not even, to me, a 50-win team. You know, they can be in the 40s. Absolutely. They can be in the 40s. And a team that wins 40 flat is probably making the playoffs in the East. So they should be okay. But they're deep in a way that is useful when their best guys are healthy. So if Goran Dragic, when he's... I want to see how their offense looks when he's off the floor. And I want to see how they can fare... If he has to miss time, whether that's scheduled rest or injury, because I don't trust any of their other guys to reliably generate offense, not for themselves necessarily, but for teammates. So Josh Richardson, Deion Waiters, Tyler Johnson, Johnson, like Kelly Olynyk, you know, they have a lot of guys that are that are talented basketball players and they make good decisions, but. You can't, at this point, I don't think they're the Spurs. I don't think they can rely on their system to generate ba- to generate baskets consistently. However, the big thing they have in their favor is that I think their defense is going to be great. And if their defense is great, maybe they can get enough in transition that they don't have to worry about being as effective in the half court. And maybe that sinks them in the playoffs. I think it probably does. But that's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. Justice Winslow is a big X factor here. Oh, yeah. Because Justice was a terrible shooter but a really good passer before he got hurt um average 3.7 assists a game for the first for those 18 games absolutely dreadful shooter so it'll be interesting to see what he can do there but uh, players improve on that it'll be very interesting to see what justice offers them whether he's given a starting job i would assume he's going to be given the starting small forward job with no question and then you know how he fits into this group because he wasn't part of that second half team so how does he fit in 
How does he make Dion? What does Dion Waiters do when he's playing next to Justice Winslow? What does how does Kelly Olynyk fit in? How does Bam Adebayo, who I thought was a really underrated draft prospect, and then I see him go 14th, and I'm like, that sounds right. Except it's to the Heat. Can he ever play with Hassan Whiteside? I don't no, know. But but I think he'll play. And whether they use, I think they're going to use Olenek more as a starting four than as a backup five, which is probably his backup five is probably his better role. But the other balancing act that Spolster is going to have to do. You talked about how Winslow was on kind of the first half team, but not the second half team. Is how you handle these expectations because you have guys like James Johnson and Dion Waiters who became larger players due to absences and injuries. And now, if they're going to be full strength, those guys just sign big contracts. Are they going to be cool with coming off the bench? If they're not cool with coming off the bench, then you're pushing other guys out. You know, is Josh Richardson going to come off the bench? So, Sometimes it's not the disease of more, which Pat Riley coined, but it's a different kind of issue where when players benefited because because of the absence of another guy, that magic dynamic is gone now. Yeah, Dion's a guy who you have to keep happy or he gives you nothing. So like it or not, you almost have to let him be the Dion Waiters he was last season, even if he's not doing it nearly as efficiently as he did last season because otherwise he becomes just a complete albatross on your team you, you can't use this guy he's 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 awful when he gets into moods when he feels like he's not getting enough attention paid um which is a fascinating situation for a guy you just gave that kind of contract to but um i do expect i mean james johnson came off the bench even when he was playing the best basketball of his life so he'll be fine it's going to be a delicate delicate task of how do you work this rotation in with some of your most highly paid players not being, you know, uh, Justice Winslow, for instance, is I think a core piece of what their future is. And then you have Tyler Johnson, who's getting paid way more, um, at least next year, if not this year. There's a lot of different pieces there that that it's going to be a great test of Eric Spolscher's coaching ability, just like last season was. They're upside in terms of it's like when this team is flowing when they're when they're getting stops and their offense is going they're gonna beat a lot of good teams like i think that that you know last year they they did beat the warriors and they i think they might have beaten cleveland as well a couple times i'm trying to remember uh but they will do that and then i think they're gonna have some really really bad losses so the challenge is figuring out whether they have more of those good wins or more of those bad losses. I think it'll end up being on the win side. That's why I think they're there. So then the two other teams that I had in this tier. So I had to clarify, I had the Bucks in this as well. So Bucks heat, Bucks heat Hornets, pretty much the same as yours. But then I add in the Sixers and the Pistons. And so the Sixers are there because A, they're a lot deeper than they were last year. And I think that's going to be important. N- not only are they getting Ben Simmons not back because he was never there. They're getting Ben Simmons on the regular season team, but Jared Bayless is going to help them out. Markel Fultz is another dynamic and Gigi Redick, I think is going to be important for them. Plus if they can get more than 31 games of Joel Embiid, I think they will be competitive there. So they're a lot like Miami in that idea that they're good will be very good and that they're bad will be very bad. They're behind them because I think they will happen in a different proportion, but it's, it's so much fun to think about what this team could be, and they actually have the talent to make it happen. Yeah, Joel Embiid being the games that Joel Embiid plays, they will be an unquestioned playoff team, in my opinion, assuming that the other guys stay healthy too. But Embiid's the one who has the long health history issue. If Embiid and Simmons are on the court together, I think that they're going to be a really good team. Um, the question is, does that happen, and how much? 
Then for the Pistons, it's really just the idea that I think they're better than all the teams that are below them. I thought about kind of putting them in a separate tier, but then maybe you could say it was a, a slippery slope with the Sixers, because once I put them in, it's like, well, you know, the Pistons are a largely similar argument, especially if you believe that Reggie Jackson is better than he played last year, which I do. I think I think that, you know, the idea that he was more hurt than or that he was playing hurt. I understand that because he was just so much worse than than he had been the year before. But they like to me, they just look like that like edge playoff team. They wouldn't be a playoff team in the West. They'd be like the eleventh or twelfth best team in the West. But I just see the pathway for them scraping together, you know, somewhere between thirty eight and forty three wins and and making it happen. Yeah, I think that this team is a classic example of um, the problems of the coach president situation that we've seen. A couple other teams unravel this offseason. You know, the Hawks came right out and officially made it happen. And the Clippers seemingly are in the process of stripping Doc Rivers of some power. And um, this this roster, just it's just not what it should be. It's not, it's not a smartly built, well-managed situation. They didn't position themselves very well, which led to them basically coughing up Caldwell Pope and then having to trade Marcus Morris for Avery Bradley. Marcus Morris is on a great contract, by the way, too. So that can't be – you shouldn't look at that as, oh, Marcus Morris isn't that good. He's on an incredible contract. You would you would want him for your bench even if you don't want him starting. So you have like a couple of really nice pieces here, Andre Drummond, Tobias Harris. You have a young guy, Stanley Johnson, who I don't think they've given up on. But have they given up on Reggie Jackson? That much is not entirely clear. And, and a lot of this team's success is going to hinge on Reggie. But I did put them – like I said – I put them in a fourth tier just with the Sixers because, to me, they're the two teams that in their hearts really believe they should be playoff teams, but I'm not as sure. And I think I, – I do believe the Sixers sh- should be if they're healthy. I think the Pistons are probably hoping the Sixers aren't healthy, in my head at least, that that's how they get – that's the easiest path for them is that the Sixers have some injury bumps or some inexperience bumps. The Pistons should be right there to take that last spot. But – I'm really unimpressed with this roster. It just does not seem for a team built around a couple really young players, 24-year-old Tobias Harris, 23-year-old Andre Drummond, their future just doesn't seem bright at all. Partially because they're so locked into this roster. Yeah. Especially in some ways now with with Avery Bradley because this just you can see the writing on the wall that if basically he's going to tell them you have to max me out or awfully close to it if I want to stay and then he'll either stay or he won't but they don't have the ability to replace him. So they're functionally locked into this. You know, hopefully Stanley Johnson can take a big step up. I, I liked him in the draft. They didn't love him, but I liked him. Another guy is the parallels with Justice Winslow are, are, are interesting just with two guys that have a lot to prove and are actually going to get the opportunity this year and on teams that are, you know, fringe Eastern Conference playoff teams. And so they can do that. I also like just the, while I don't think it made them that much better, I like what Avery Bradley can do for them. And I like Luke Kennard as well. I I think he's somebody that Stan knows how to use. And so if they can just put Kennard in the right spot, depending on how they want to handle back a point guard, they're very... Langston Galloway. Yeah, Langston Galloway. I'm a big fan of Langston Galloway. And and Ish Smith. So like they they have depth. It's not necessarily the best depth, but I I wonder about them. And I think making them like, I think, do we both have them as the nine spot just in different tiers? So yeah, basically they're the, if somebody else falls off, we get the spot. And part of the reason why they have that place is just because everybody else is so much worse than they are. 
Audie and I still have a lot to talk about in terms of the Eastern Conference tiers, but I wanted to tell you all about Movement Watches. They've been a sponsor of Real Jam Radio for a while, and I'm thrilled to have them as a sponsor because they fit in so well with a lot of the things that I value. And it's a really high quality, beautiful product at a reasonable price. And they have a lot of different styles that you can go through. I'm personally, and the watch that I have that I love is in the 40 series. They're a little bit smaller. The one that I have is the rose gold, the brown rose gold. It's a beautiful timepiece and it's a little bit understated. That's what I like in a watch, but you can go in really whatever direction you want. They have something beautiful, something that lines up with what you're looking for. And by taking out the retail markup and the middlemen that are just a frustrating part of the of the watch business that help drive prices up without really providing much in the way of value, Movement is able to take a watch that's more in line with the $400, $500 timepieces, and they start at $95. And $95 is a great price, and you can actually get it even cheaper because our deal with them is that if you go to movementwatches.com slash realgm, and that's movement MVMT watches.com slash realgm, you get 15% off with free shipping and free returns. So it's just, just a beautiful piece. You'll find something you like, whatever your style is. I know some people like flashier, gaudier things, and that's not me, but if that's you, by all means, they have some beautiful, beautiful timepieces in that range. But again, it is movement watches mvmt watches.com slash real gm just like this podcast just like the site i've written for since 2009 15% off including free shipping and free returns join the movement this is where we get to the ugliness tiers right so do you have a separation between the pistons and the other teams as well just this smaller tier i have uh i have two more tiers coming up i think but but you have the pistons as the as the a line of demarcation right yeah after yeah. them the pistons are the last team that like if they make the playoffs it kind of makes sense <laughs> and then you have the teams that are either outright tanking or don't know they're tanking but are <laughs> and uh so for me i have the number 10 hawks number 11 magic number 12 pacers and number 13 knicks in one tier Mine is similar to that. I'm calling this the plausible tier. So it's like they have they have a there's a way that I can see them making the playoffs, but it's it's on the fringes. And so I have Orlando, Atlanta, and Indiana, not the Knicks in this tier. I'll explain why in a couple minutes. But to me, Orlando is probably the most talented of these teams. I think they have the most upside just because Aaron Gordon hasn't shown it a lot of like they had a lot of kind of misshaped pieces last year and i think that makes a lot more sense now and even though we talked about this in the western conference one jonathan simmons might be a little bit overrated he brings them something they didn't have and i i've thought for a while that the pathway for orlando to being a competitive team is through defense and now that's a lot easier to see we don't know exactly who frank vogel is going to start but they can run some lineups out there that are going to stop teams and that's a, a good foundation for some of what they want to do. The most interesting player on their roster, excluding the love that we all have for Mario Hazonia, is without a doubt Alfred Payton, who is entering an cru- a crucial season in terms of his next contract coming up, um, but had a really stunningly good second half. Um, and I don't think anyone noticed it. I know I barely noticed who watched Magic games in the second half, really, right? So, But he shot 50% from the field. He topped 30% on threes, which is progress at least. And he averaged 13.5 
8.4 assists and seven rebounds a game in the second half. I mean, this guy, and he had a positive uh, on-off rating, I believe, and like he made some real progress in the second half. He still has some talent. I'm always saying point guards are slow to develop, and he's still a 6'4 point guard with crazy athleticism and quickness. So if they can get more out of Alfred Payton, if, that, if this was real, if that second half was real, and they can get a full season of it or even better, we suddenly have you know, yet another like pretty solid young point guard in the league leading a team that doesn't, in my opinion, I still, I still worry a lot about whether they have anyone who can hit the jumpers he gives them, but there's something there and there's something that, that wasn't there a year ago when I think we all kind of thought Alfred Payton wasn't an NBA caliber starting point guard. He definitely looked a lot better, played that more complete game. Like you talked about, my concern is that they still didn't win that much so you're kind of sitting there going well what did that do for them i mean it made them it made them a more competitive loser which is better you know being a more competitive loser is certainly super at least it gives at least it gives them an answer though right yeah or at least half an answer Uh, another year's worth of it's worth us giving alfred payton another shot it's worth us you can't extend him right you can't extend him but i think you unless you get a really reasonable deal i don't know why he would agree to a deal that the magic would also agree on but you know, I think he's in a situation where this um, if he hadn't had that second half, if he had played in the second half like he did in the first, they probably would have went into the draft, even with new management that doesn't think the same way old management did, thinking that they just had to draft a point guard no matter what. And there were still there were still some people w- within their organization who felt we should still draft a point guard, ideally one who can play off ball, but we need to push Elf and we need to make sure that he doesn't we, that we're not ending up locking up our future to him by giving him a massive contract after next season. So there were still some people who wanted them to take a Dennis Smith or a Frank Nielakina because they thought, oh, he can play with Elfried or replace him if we don't want to pay to keep Elfried. But right now, I think they're in a situation where they're going to give Peyton a real chance to earn his money. And uh, sometimes that's scary long term, but it, it makes for an interesting 2017-18 season. They should have taken Dennis Smith because Dennis Smith was the best player available. And also they have a need there and everything else. Yeah. But I mean, I think they took the best player available. But uh, I it's, think they took- it's so frustrating because I love Jonathan Isaac, too. Like I had Jonathan Isaac, I think fourth. I think I had fifth because I had all, all the point guards at the top. But Dennis Smith was was better to me. But it, Isaac was the better. I like I liked Isaac better than Tatum, though. A lot of it depends on teams. And I'm not sure I still feel that way because Tatum, you know, we'll have to see what he has to put him. I mean, we talked Nate and I talked about that a little bit on Doug but the magic I, I just think there's a, a greater chance that they figure it out this year they also just have yeah with better with more suited talent and all that sort of stuff but so the other two teams that i have in this tier we'll go through them before we talk about the knicks because that would be the nice transition because we have that disagreement i think atlanta is the worst of these the three teams that i have but and, and i think they're the best but so i on talent i think they're the worst but Budenholzer makes them significantly better. Like, I think that he has consistently had his teams outperform relative to their talent level. And in some ways, that's easier to do when your team is actually good. Maybe your guys are underappreciated, like Millsap was for a while. Teague was there for a little while. But I worry a lot about their offense. I don't think their offense makes much sense. And they're, they have depth, but I don't think they have enough top-end quality to make that depth particularly helpful. Yeah. First of all, I want to say shout-out to Travis Schlenk for refusing 
to be a lesser version of the Wizards and Raptors and just yes, congrats. He- yeah, and I mean, if they had had him in place last year, then they would have actually gotten something for Millsap. Yeah, and they would have never ever signed White. But um, uh, regardless of that, I think the Hawks have a lot of interesting players, and um, you know, they certainly have reason to expect more from Dennis Schroeder, who I think should have a better season, should keep getting better. And they had they made a brilliant decision to sign Dwayne Dedman. And now they have, with Mascala and Dedman, they have like, if those two guys, their strengths and weaknesses were brought together into one player, it'd be the best center in the league. Or like one of them would <laughs> be right on that far. Uh, so they can put John Collins next to two really good modern style centers. Collins killed it in summer league and has a crazy amount of talent can play in a lot of different ways, including stretching out to the three-point line. I never like the idea of giving rookies big roles, but you'll live with it while you're tanking. It's going to be very interesting to see how much this team actually does tank, how much they let a player sit for an extra two weeks when he gets hurt, that sort of stuff. The, the, the stuff that actually happens when a team tanks, because they're never trying to lose games. They're just letting players sit out a little longer, making midseason trades of their veterans. And that's going to be where, where it's interesting because that might cost them, that might drop them all the way down to the bottom tier if, if they're hell bent on becoming younger and getting rid of a Kent Bazemore who's going to try as hard as he possibly can at every moment. Or an Ursan Ilyasova who we've, we saw last year, like he's a smart player. The Sixers were always better with him on the court. Um, and, uh, you know, the, those are the kind of players that they still have on their roster that it'll be interesting to see who they end up with ending the season. But right now, Prince, Tarian Prince is still on project to be a really good, versatile, defensive, 3-4 hybrid type player. And Schroeder's a good point guard. And Collins is, is a really high potential, high ceiling power forward. I like a lot of pieces they have. And then I think Budenholzer brings it all together and makes them win more than they should. If their offense is better than the bottom five, they'll be a very good team because I think their defense is going to be really good, but I just don't know how they're going to score. Yeah, that's going to be the issue. And, and Collins will probably, quite honestly, be asked to do some of that. They're yeah, gonna, he, he probably will be. So, so they might end up stumbling into some of the same stuff that the Magic did last year. Where par- I think part of the reason the Magic's their defense was worse than expected was because they had to go get in transition so much because their their offense betrayed their defense. That might happen a little bit to the Hawks, but they also have done a good job cultivating talent on kind of the bottom end of the roster. They can work through some guys. Boonholzer can coach them up. And that kind of goes in with the Pacers, who I actually think are a better team on talent. Like, you look at their starting five, and you go, okay, that kind of makes sense. It's also possible that they could trade some of those guys, especially if they end up falling in this area. Like, I know that they're trying to be better than this. Like, if they end up more like where the Pistons are, then they'll be happy and they'll go through it. But I don't believe in McMillan to necessarily squeeze all of that he can out of that talent. And they could, <laughs> and I could obviously see falling apart. But look at their starting five. So they're going to start either Collison or or. Corey Joseph at the one. That's fine. Not not great, but fine. Oladipo. Then you assume that they're probably going to go. Yeah, I, I think they're. I think they're probably going to go with Bohan. That would be my. That would be my guess. They could go with Glenn Robinson if they wanted to, but I don't expect that. Or they, Lance. They could also go with well, Lance. I think. La- I think Lance is going to be a big second unit guy for them. Though now they need his ball handling less because they ended up getting two point guards. But yeah. then they have Thaddeus Young and Miles Turner at foul four and center. Like that's a pretty good starting lineup for a team that's not a playoff team. Like, it's it's right. obviously not good compared to like if we're going to talk about so the teams that we had at the bottom of the West playoff picture, you know, like the Clippers or 
I think you had the Nuggets down there. Like the, their starting five is way better than the Pacers. But in the East, you know, I, there are there aren't that many weaknesses in that. There aren't that many strengths, but there aren't that many weaknesses. And then their second unit's okay. The other point guard, Lance, some you know, just kind of still some holdover kind of creator type guys. And then yeah, Al what Jefferson, T.J. Leaf. Yeah. yeah, and then whatever of their their kind of younger guys steps up. You know, they have they have Ikeana Bogu as well. You know, if he can step into a role, Seraphin, I believe, is still there. And so they might be able to piece it together. That's why I think they have a plausible case. But it's kind of, I think Budenholzer, he, the Hawks jump them because of the kind of Rick Carlisle thing that until a team doesn't perform, doesn't exceed their talent, then I'm going to give that coach deference. Yeah, and the Nate McMillan thing is, to me, a problem. Um, I don't see offense on this on this lineup other than like Al Jefferson ISOs and Miles Turner just doing things. But I think that they inherited, Kevin Pritchard inherited a really bad situation and is trying to make the most of it. And that's not a full scale tank. Like you said, they went in, they went out and they added some veterans. Um, but they also added a couple guys, Oladipo, Corey Joseph and, and Sabonis, who I think are not just veterans, but also were kind of like risks. Like Corey Joseph has never been a starting point guard full time. What will this look like? And I do think he'll start over Collison. Oladipo, has never even been close to the best player on his team or the star scorer on his team, and now he's probably going to be their lead scorer. So what will this look like? And, uh, you know, Sabonis had a rough rookie season but did start. Now it'll be interesting to see what he does in a better role for him. So they're an interesting team, and I think Kevin Pritchard is nowhere near done. That's the best way I can say it is. I think they're they're planning on continually reshaping this roster and kind of ridding themselves of – the weird stuff that Larry Bird decided to do once he blew up the team that was really good. They also have this kind of year in 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 limbo because of the way a lot of their contracts were structured, and they didn't really violate that vision with this. So Darren Collison's on a one-year contract, basically as a light partial guarantee for next year. Corey Joseph has a player option. We expect him to decline. Thad Young has a player option. He's probably going to decline. Al Jefferson has a small partial guarantee for next year. So if they want to blow this up or just let those guys go that's not a problem like they can do that and they could that could happen in june or it could happen in february depending on what they want how they want to handle that indiana i think what makes them stand out is that they are the least interesting team in a couple of years that had a lot of turnover so like usually when a team changes over a lot then the next year like i want to watch them at the beginning just to see how it works out you know you want to kind of test the waters who steps up and all that kind of stuff they acquired a bunch of guys that I feel like I already know who they are. And so that could change. You know, maybe Oladipo really blossoms having a larger part of the role. But Corey Joseph, Darren Collison, keeping Thaddeus Young, like that team is pretty much what we think they're going to be. I mean, I don't think Bojan Bogdanovic is going to blow us all away, whether he's a starter or coming off the bench. So they're fine. You know, they're in this plausible mix that there's a shot that this all works out and they make it in a crappy East, but you never really know. Now you don't think, but I do think that there is a similar level shot at the the team that I believe we both rank 13th, uh, the Knicks make it. I think that there is a plausible, plausible, can't say it enough times shot that the New York Knicks with further development on offense and defense from Tim Hardaway, as as he expects to, to see. And um, maybe a little help from Joakim Noah, but especially just the fact is that they still have Carmelo and Porzingis. 
I think that there's a plausible shot that the Knicks make a run at being in that same realm as the Pistons and maybe winning one more game than the Pistons. The Sixers have injury problems again, and the next thing you know, the Knicks are the eighth seed and getting blown out in the first round. I think that's still a possibility. A lot of it hinges on the future of Carmelo Anthony. People focus a lot, though this is less true now, actually, I'm realizing now that this is now an outdated argument about how the idea of, oh, point guards aren't that important because look at how they're not key on championships. Of course, the last three champions have all had point guards prominently featured, two with it as the best player, one as their second best player. But point guard, point guard play... Whoa, 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 whoa. Can't let you slip there. I know you're a, I know you're a Bay Area guy, but Kevin Durant's better than Stephen Curry. He, you can continue now. <laughs> he wasn't... I, I mean, he was better in the finals, but, but Curry, I think Curry is the guy that makes, that makes the... Well, even if he... I said best or... Oh, yeah, fine. I, I think that Durant was better in the finals. I think Curry, you know, like the offense doesn't work without him. And, all right, all right, all right. We can move on. Anyway, okay. But but where you really see the importance of point guards is by who makes the playoffs and who does not make the playoffs. At this point, we, we really do see that. I mean, it does happen sometimes where a team that doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have a lead, a, a, a competent guy makes it in. But I don't see this Knicks team being that type of situation, especially with Carmelo's place on it being so uncertain. I, I don't think Ron Baker is going to be the linchpin. I don't think Tim Hardaway can run an offense. He's more of a secondary guy to me. Courtney Lee can't do it. Porzingis can't do it. You know, he's you know, he's he's the other guy. He's the guy who sets the screen, not the guy who dribbles the ball and passes it to Porzingis. If he could do both those, they'd be a lot better of a team. But I don't see that path for them, and I also don't see a path for them to get that guy this year. It could end up being the best thing for them long term, even though this doesn't seem like a good point guard draft, just to ha- just to bottom out a little bit harder because you have this fatal flaw. But I don't think a team at their level of talent, can survive that. Yeah, it's, I mean, Derek, first of all, Derek Rose isn't that guy. I think we can both agree on that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, We completely agree on that. Yeah. I mean, the worst point guard to make the playoffs last year by far was Malcolm Brogdon, but he wasn't running his offense, just like you said. Giannis was running the offense. They had a Giannis. The Knicks don't have a Giannis. The Knicks have two two guys who are both all-star caliber players or potential, or like a guy who could be an all-star, even if they're not really. Um, But they're scorers. Carmelo and, and Porzingis are both scorers. And Nilakina not being healthy for summer league, Nilakina being viewed, being one of the youngest players, if not the youngest player in that draft. You know that the you can't expect him to be the guy this year. So yeah, those are all issues. I do think that you know a proper Carmelo trade might include a point guard or at least a guy who helps run the offense. Um, I think that they're probably not going to have a Carmelo trade. They're probably going to end up just releasing him at some point in the future. But basically. The whole hope of the Knicks, everything rides on Kristaps Porzingis. Everything rides on Phil being gone and that making Porzingis happier. The triangle being gone and that making Porzingis more useful because they should absolutely run more pick and rolls for him. And that should all, like, it basically hinges on if Kristaps Porzingis can make a monumental leap, then suddenly it may not matter as much if they have a Derrick Rose at point guard or a random dealy type or you know some other scrap heap guy you know i I used to always use cj watson as like the replacement point guard the guy you could bring in if you ever needed to and someone would trade you cj watson whoever whatever team he's on would trade you cj watson and let him let him fill in for you as either your backups point guard or an emergency starter like if they can get a cj watson caliber point guard 
and Porzingis makes a star leap, they might steal a spot in this East. That's uh, that's not clear as to who it would be. But yeah, I think that the Knicks, the Knicks are the Knicks, and they, at least they don't have Phil Jackson anymore. That's the best. <laughs> so what's kind of funny to me is that I think to a point we agree a little bit on that next thing. I just think that's a worse. I think that's a less likely case than those other three teams. And I what think it really comes down to for me is that the bottom two teams are so much, like so awful, and we're we're about to get to them. But that's the that's the reason that I almost mercifully could have argued that the Knicks should just be on their own tier, as in not the Nets and Bulls. That's what the best thing I can say about the Knicks is, is that they're not the Nets and the Bulls. <laughs> See, I, I think the Nets are going to be meaningfully better than the Bulls because the Nets have a backcourt that actually kind of makes sense. I think they can generate offense and they have all these other guys that aren't necessarily complete players, but I think are going to try hard and are going to execute because I believe in Ken Atkinson. And I think that they had, they don't, they have enough leverage over these guys because they're making so little money that if they don't try, they can just cut them. Yeah. So I think the nets are going to be meaningfully better than the bulls. I actually think there's a a significant chance that the nets are better than the Knicks, not because they're better on a talent level, but just because they'll do what they need to like they'll kind of be the the crappier version of the hawks where they'll you know they'll they'll execute they'll they'll win some games through scrapping and they did that at the end of the year a couple times and then the bulls they're just awful i mean robin lopez is a nice player for what he is and the rest of their team we don't know what's going on with miritich but i'm assuming he'll be back in some form whether that's a reasonable assumption or not that's where i am right now the entirety of the rest of their roster just is bad and doesn't make sense. Yeah. To start with the Nets, my big flaw with the Nets, without a doubt, it's pretty hard to miss it when you look at their roster, is like they've got three guys taller than 6'8". Timothy Mozgov, Jared Allen, who's a rookie and really raw, in my opinion at least, and Andrew Nicholson, who's kind of grown cold on over the over the last few years. He just hasn't produced. So Mozgov, who's got injury problems and has been awful, is without a doubt their best player over six nine, over six eight. That's a, a, a really bizarrely built roster. That um, then on top of that, you know, you have just a crazy logjam at shooting guard. Like three quarters of their roster looks best if you call them a shooting guard. And I like some of these guys, and I think some of the, like Karis Levert can probably play small forward. But then Rondé Hollis Jefferson's playing full time power forward, which he's a little small for, might not be ready for physically. You know, Archie Goodwin was a good like value pickup for nothing to see if he still has any, if he ever had anything. You know, Sean Kilpatrick was a terrific player for them last year out of nowhere. But man, that's a, it's a, it's a very bizarrely built roster that clearly, and this is the main reason I have them in this tier clearly is not trying to win even though they don't own their pick they are just focused on developing and developing and developing and dealing with the fact that they don't have these picks and not looking at it as we need to lose as many games as possible but also not thinking of well since we don't have our picks we need to try to make the playoffs at any cost and i like that marks has done that with this roster but i also think it's led them to a really bad weirdly fit roster that that just doesn't make sense I don't really have much opposition to that. Having Lynn and Russell together, though, I think their offense can be better than anticipated. Then defensively, they'll be, you know, like this is a team to me that has a shot of being like 20th in offense and 20th in defense. Yeah. And if that's, that's the fair. case, then they're not going to be like the worst team in the league. Trevor Booker is a guy who 
will just win you a game or two um, just because of how tough he is and the fact that he can hit his open threes, stretch a defense, and he'll probably even play some center for them. And so he's a guy who I'd look to trade. Probably look to trade Jeremy Lin right now too. Not because I uh, – although Jeremy Lin is a great fan draw, which can't be overlooked, but there's teams looking for a Jeremy Lin or a Trevor Booker, and they'll probably look to move those, which is another reason I think long-term – by the end of the year, this roster could be really, really bad. You're right that they could be worse towards the end of the year. It seems unlikely that they'll get better because if they added guys that actually improved them, that would probably be because they want to get bought out, like that they how they yeah. use their money. And something quick I wanted to mention just from a roster construction standpoint, we've seen this with a couple of teams recently that they have cap space left, but they also have 15 guys on their roster. And... There, that really leaves you two options in terms of if you want to use that space to get assets or whatever. One is you can acquire that player during the offseason because then you can acquire them and, and cut them. So that can be dead money. For example, like Spencer Hawes. Like Spencer Hawes, for either of these teams, if Milwaukee was willing to attach an asset, that would be perfect. You just you take him into the space, you cut him, no muss, no fuss, you don't take a rush spot. The only other way to do it really is to either include some of your own players in the trade and they could they could do that or cutting somebody. And so in the Nets case that's not that big a deal, you know. If if you get the right offer, you can there Cut is Joe Harris. Joe Harris, Quincy AC, Archie Goodwin, you know, whoever one of those guys. But the the example for this and I should have mentioned this when we talked about them was Sacramento. So Sacramento has 15 guys on the roster that they like and that they a lot of them are signed long term. They have almost nobody on on a one-year contract other than Vince and Vince is not in the same situation as a lot of these guys. So they actually I guess Sacramento doesn't even have that much cap space left burning. So the, I've been surprised by how frequently we've seen that. Like, I think Chicago still has a little bit of wiggle room. Chicago's also unbelievably awful. But yeah, I mean, so so how some of these teams are going to approach it, and maybe th- that could be through some insight that they have into where this is going, that there just aren't going to be as many teams trying to cut salary late. That's entirely possible with how this is structured. Like There are some teams that are way over the cap, way over the tax, but maybe those teams are just kind of hunkering down and that the only teams that are kind of more in the range would be like OKC, depending on how all those stuff works out. And everybody else, because of the way that this worked out, there are a lot of teams that were limited, but that didn't end up going over the tax. Like Detroit's a good example of this or Toronto. Yeah, the salary cap, the salary tax is going to be a big deal this year because a lot of teams pushing up against it just slightly like the Bucks, who are going to look to dump a team, uh, dump a player and dump an asset with it if necessary just to get under the tax. I want to say to fans, you should be a little annoyed. Your owners are making a lot of money. They can't afford to pay the tax. And they're basically spinning it as if it ha- it's just something that every team does. Which <laughs> like, uh, it really isn't. But um, the Bulls, the weird thing about the Bulls and the Nets is that they would kind of make like a sensible roster if you put them together. If you if you combine these two rosters, they'd probably leap up two tiers, three Their tiers. Their front court would still be bad. You'd have Robin Lopez. You'd have, you know, the Miritich Portis Booker. But even then, like, they're still not a playoff team, even if you combine these two teams. But at least, like, their rosters would make sense. But, yeah, the one thing I wanted to say about the Chicago Bulls is Gar Foreman and their front office, Gar Pax has done so many things, made so many moves to try to get a point guard to replace Derrick Rose over the last, since Derrick Rose, like, since, it, since they traded Derrick Rose, including in the Derrick Rose trade. 
every single one of these moves, like every trade they've made in that span and multiple signings has involved the point guard somehow, and it's always failed. And so I just, at this point, I don't even know what to say to Bulls fans, but they've sacrificed a lot of potentially good players like a Tony Snell, like a Doug McDermott, like a, you know, Todd Gibson was obviously going to hit free agency, but, you know, a core piece of their franchise that they that they traded for mediocre point guards. And that must just, I, I hope that they, they just stop and they just say, you know what, we're just going to draft a point guard. But let's just do yeah, that. And you, and you know what was their best opportunity to do that of all of these? When they had Dennis Smith and Frank Milikino on board and on the board. And took Mark. And, and Donovan Mitchell. And, you know, I just... It's amazing. They're like obsessed with bad point guards and intriguing, but not there yet. Stretch power forwards. <laughs> and, and I don't. I, I I'm okay with Markinen. Like he's not a, a terrible player, but Dennis but Smith was way better than him. And the, the I think another part of their struggle struggles is that they aren't as fluid in terms of analysis. So Chris Dunn, they, they, we know they really liked him in the pre-draft stuff because they almost traded Jimmy Butler for him then. You know, it was Jimmy Butler for that pick. For that pick. Yeah. I, I think Levine <laughs> was even involved in them. I think it was a pretty but, similar trade to what ended up happening. But then, then we saw Jimmy Butler became amazing. Went from all-star caliber to probably top 10 player. And Chris Dunn had an awful rookie year despite being one of the oldest rookies. Right. And so and they, they, they didn't incorporate any of that new information. Cameron Payne, I liked him as a lottery pick. I thought that, you know, the idea being that at least at the worst case, he'd be a backup point guard. I thought he could create, get a little bit of separation, create shots for himself, create shots for other people. And then he was, you know, hit or miss in his rookie year. And then due to injuries and just other stuff, he was really disappointing last year. And then they gave up, they treated him like a really valuable piece. You can't do that unless you're just assuming that there every single other player is in a bad situation and you're just you're just seeing them for what they really are but then what's happened is at least so far none of these guys have ever worked out for them you know like maybe they thought mcw is going to work for us he didn't yeah and tony snell absolutely worked for the bucks totally and jerry grant hasn't worked for them cameron payne hasn't worked for them we'll see with chris dunn i mean he was he was only in summer league for one game. That game wasn't super impressive, but it's one game. I'm not going to read too much into that. <laughs> so, there. I think they're just going to be. They're going to be terrible, and it's unfortunate that the people who basically built this flawed team are now in Isaiah, charge of. Isaiah Cannon was another one who they yeah, really but they thought. Didn't really oh, give up anything for him. All he all he was was no, a roster. But I'm just saying they just kept adding like and. They kept adding these very mediocre point guards and then somehow making them even worse. But the, the because other Cannon one, was like, Cannon looked like a passable NBA player at times for the Sixers. And the, the the funny sad part about this is normally like we would be killing the Orlando Magic for basically their perpetual signing backup point guards to bad multi year contracts. But a when we found out when I found out that uh, Shelvin Max contract is only partially guaranteed for the second year, also his contract's not that bad. And because the Bulls are actually given up assets, you know, spending seven million in cap space isn't great. You know, the the DJ Augustine contract is horrible, but using you know you know a talented young guy like Tony Snell, Doug McDermott, those guys are on rookie scale contracts and then have restricted rights after it in a time when restricted rights are incredibly valuable because those guys are i mean look at the market right now almost every single good player left is a restrictive region because those guys are still getting murdered out there so they gave all that up for guys that weren't good 
and it's 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 sad. I mean, I want every team to be talented. I want every team to be exciting, and they're just not. Yeah. I also I feel bad goes, for Fred Hoiberg yeah, because this goes back to the conversation that I keep. I, I've brought this up a lot lately, just because it's been so obvious. And like, why are the Cavs not the clear cut number one's ownership? Why are the Bulls the clear cut last ownership? You know, why why are Gar Packs still in charge of the Bulls ownership? It's so important to have good owners. And Jerry Reinsdorf is a person who doesn't like. Um, they, they may not waive Dwayne Wade because Reinsdorf doesn't want to give him money to go away. That's the type of franchise that Reinsdorf has run, even in the MJ years, but especially since the MJ years. And uh, that's part of why he trusts Gar Packs. It's a limiting factor for them. They may not be getting a fair scrape of the because they're not a, allowed to go over the salary cap to keep players. They're not allowed to do things that other franchises are. But, you know, the Bulls have made a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes. And uh, it's amazing that it doesn't even seem like they're looking seriously at changes. Somehow, we talked for a longer period of time about the East than the West. Is there anything else that you feel like we need to discuss? We can, we can extend it to either conference, like that that you feel like we haven't we haven't talked about enough in this. No, I think I think that's the main thing. I think this is going to be a bizarre year for the NBA. There's a lot of disharmony. There are a lot of teams that feel like they're one piece away from actually maybe competing with the Warriors, even though they're not. Um, and I think we're going to see a crazy number of trades. It could be. I mean, I'm wondering how long, especially teams in the East, like how long these teams are going to think they're competitive because that could end up, especially with the earlier trade deadline this year, that could really end up messing with this because if let's say the Pacers and the Pacers, the Hawks, the Magic, that group, if you want to add the Knicks in by all means, if those teams head into mid-January, late January, and they still think maybe they're three games out of the playoffs, they're not gonna they're not gonna sell. Like they're not gonna they're not gonna sell that much. But teams Hawks in the might. West might and yeah. uh, it's absolutely wild. Yeah. It's very bizarre because there's still a lot of there, there seems to genuinely be a belief among a lot of teams that they can come to a, a situation where they can either compete if you're in the East with the Cavs or in the West with the Warriors and in the East, maybe you can. I mean, the Cavs are certainly are going through a lot, but in the West, like, there's no team that's one that's one simple, normal type of move away from from competing. Like, I, I threw out a hypothetical where the Nuggets get Kyrie Irving. I think that would make them a great team. I don't think that the Nuggets getting Kyrie Irving and not giving up any of their key current players um, would. I don't think just adding Kyrie Irving to the current Nuggets would put them anywhere near where the the Warriors are. And that's that's just the reality. And that's the funny part about this season is it's all kind of feels like, okay, all these teams made some great moves. We've got a lot of really, really good teams, especially in the West. And the Warriors are still the best team. Other than the Rockets, because that whole experiment is, is so much fun for me. I'm a lot more interested in who's next than who's now. You know, like the the Bucks, the Sixers, the Nuggets, the Wolves, you know, like those teams that are probably going to peak in two, three years. I, I want to see where, where who's lining up to be to be competitive with the Celtics in the East after the Cavs, whether the Cavs LeBron leaves or not. And then also, you know, the teams that could end up becoming a part of that, like the Lakers, you know, like can the Lakers young guys look good enough that whether it's LeBron or Paul George or Boogie or whoever else, that those guys say, I want to play there because 
we're going to see some talent change hands in 2018. We saw some this year, mostly through trades. I think next year it's going to be through free agency. And how this sets the table for that will be a lot of fun, especially with so many new faces in new places. Like, I think that's going to all those things running together and also having all these guys that are on new teams and going to be free agents next year. Like that's super weird. Like DeMarcus Cousins is basically in that boat. You know, he finished last year on that team. Paul George is in that boat. I'm so excited. Chris Paul, like how all that works out. Yep. NBA is changing just at a ridiculous rate and stars are setting the table. And I mean, this is going to be a a weird, weird year for the league. It is. Thank you so much for coming on. Yep. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Adi Joseph for taking the time to come on. You can read him at For the Win, where he is the deputy editor and also USA Today Sports. You can also follow him on Twitter at Adi Joseph. That's A-D-I-J-O-S-E-P-H. Really enjoyed talking with him. And I wanted to do a tears podcast in late July just kind of to set the table. And I'm guessing it will be a while until we do another one, maybe at some point in early October. I'm still kind of wrapping my brain around how I want to do the beginning of the season because now the season starts earlier. So I'm kind of figuring out my timeline for everything like that. And one thing that I do know that is a part of that timeline is bringing back the Division Capsule podcast. So for those of you who aren't familiar, that is both a combination of off-season review and regular season preview with two guests at the same time, because I think that promotes more of a conversation. And already have a, a really good group lined up for not every slot, but a lot of those slots. And so those will start coming soon. They're not going to be every episode because if something comes up, let's say Kyrie Irving gets traded or whatever else, or if there's a guest that I think is worth having on in a separate time frame or not in that in that line, I will do that. That's the benefit of Real GM Radio and you know the flexibility that I have is that if something comes up. But among the episodes between now and the start of the season will be those six. So you can look forward to that and then other material as it comes up. And if there's something that you really want to hear, any feedback, as I always say, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com, at DannyLaRue on Twitter. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I don't promise I'll respond. Even now in the offseason, I'm still too busy. Um, still actually getting very, very close to having a full like edit of the book. I'm going through right now and doing kind of some some later stage stuff, which is awfully exciting. It will come out November 1st, and it should be available for pre-order many places. But so I don't have that. I don't have a ton of time with that. But if you support, if you want to support the show, that's also a great thing you can do. And really, these same rules apply to any other show that you like. Leave a rating, leave a review, and the podcast player for choosing. Great if it's iTunes, but if it's not, still welcome. Also, subscribe, download every episode. Big help. Just the way the business still works is that downloads matter. And so subscribing is a great way to do that. And so if there's a podcast you like, support it that way, because that's something we can send to advertisers. And that's the other huge way that you can support this show and any others that are lucky enough to have advertisers. I'm fortunate that it's also Movement Watches is a company that I not only use their products, I heartily enjoy their products and support it enthusiastically. So mbmtwatches.com slash real GM, you get 15% off. Look at their wide variety of options. I mean, they're really high quality pieces and also free shipping, free return. So if you don't like it for whatever reason, you can do it that way. So check that out. Excited to see where this goes over the next little bit. Some of the episodes that are coming out, because I am actually going to take a vacation, but I will have episodes coming out during that time. 
but I'll just record them ahead of time and then release them. So that's the way that's going to go. And you will kind of notice that. And also, of course, for those of you who are so inclined, you can check out The Athletic. The Athletic SF is going to launch slash relaunch. I mean, it was just me. Now it is a whole heck of a lot more than just me, which is really exciting. Tim Kawakami is our editor-in-chief. Really great roster that is only going to grow over the next little while, including Marcus Thompson. And we're relaunching on August 1st, so you can check that out. And one of the great things about The Athletic is... If you subscribe to one place, you get all of it. So it's really a collective and the work that is being done everywhere. I mean, you could go with Jason Lloyd in Cleveland, Eric Kareen, Blake Murphy, and the other people in the Athletic Toronto. James Myrtle does really good work and all over Sean Hyken with the Bulls and, and everywhere. I mean, it's just, it's really impressive to be a part of that family. And then it was announced this week. I've been sitting on it for a little while, but very excited that we're going to have college basketball and college football verticals as well. So you can check that out. But that's enough of a promotion for something that is not affiliated with Real GM, though it is affiliated with me. Uh, I'll probably have some other work. I'll, of course, have some for The Athletic coming out in the near future after I finally get the book kind of in a, in a settled place. There's a lot of writing. I have a kind of a, a line, a page of notes of other articles I want to write. So that is more than enough rambling for now. You can check out Dunked On, of course, as well. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited world-class treatment center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you. We will answer your call 24-7 and can get you into treatment as soon as today. If outpatient care is right for you, you can receive a same-day assessment and attend therapy in person or virtually. And because we accept most private insurance plans, you get premium care without the premium price. Don't wait. Start your new year. Start your new life today. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.